0: Uh, It's not long until the Commonwealth Games start on the Gold Coast, uh, down to a matter of weeks. There'll be dozens of nations, thousands of athletes, hundreds of thousands of spectators and tourists, and hopefully everyone gets along. Uh, The Commonwealth Games is like a mini Olympic Games, except Australia actually wins medals, uh, which is why we like it. Uh, And it's actually got the same goal as the Olympics. The Olympic ideal is achieving unity through sport. Achieving unity through sport. Breaking down barriers. Promoting togetherness, the togetherness of humanity, the brotherhood of mankind. Different languages and and cultures, different religions from different continents and countries. And the ideal is that sport has the potential to bring the world together. Uh, in a way that few other things can. Uniting nations under that banner of physical competition. And it it holds out the glimmer of hope that just for a few weeks the world can forget its differences. It's the world of Genesis 10 really that Genesis 10, if you look at it there in your Bible, we've got a a whole list of nations that are diverse and scattered and different and, and yet they're all descended from one man, from Noah and his three sons. Chapter nine, we saw Noah uh, was commanded to be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth, uh, and, and that's what he—that's what happens. That as uh, they spread through the known world and, and people groups develop cultures and languages, that's chapter ten. They've all come from this one ancestor, and so there's this basic principle of equality there in chapter ten. Different but all from the same background. Uh, They all owe their life to the same God who promises they've been given the same mandate, they all have the same rights, they're all just as valuable as each other. And that's what we're seeing promoted in the Commonwealth Games or the Olympic Games for that matter. Sport, the great equaliser, all types, colours, races, countries, all come together in unity. It seems ideal and perhaps idealistic, doesn't it? A couple of years ago, when the World Cup soccer was on, there was an ad apparently that screened in America trying to get Americans interested in the World Game. And the ad went The World Cup is so big, it closes schools and shops, it brings cities to a standstill, it even stops a war. Uh, and apparently, Ivory Coast qualified for the World Cup finals for the first time. And after three years of civil war, the feuding factions were talking for the first time in years, and the president called a truce. Uh, because, as everyone knows, a country divided—sorry, uh, a country united—makes better cheerleaders uh, than a country divided. Uh, and so, apparently, this ceasefire was caused by the the, the soccer team who were playing in the World Cup final. But when the cheering stops, when the medals have been handed out, whether it's the World Cup or the Olympics or the Commonwealth Games, can the peace last? Do these sporting events have the potential to do what they hope? North and South Korea, Muslim and Christian, Palestinian and Jew, Russia and America, maybe they lay down their differences for a month, But what happens when the cheering stops? Once the games are over will China and America stop arguing over the South China Sea? Will persecution of Christians in Egypt or the Sudan stop? Will North Korea and South Korea suddenly pull down the barriers? It's highly unlikely, isn't it? What chance is there that the conflict in Syria can be solved by a running race? or the terrorist threat in America. It's nice to imagine, to envision peace and unity, but we can't stop our division and hostility for a fortnight. The dream of something that can prove to be the great unifier, the great peacemaker, turns out to be simply that, a dream. We could make the same declarations about the United Nations That's the message of Genesis 11. That real unity will never be possible in this world when man excludes God. You see, that's the heart of the problem in Babel. Excluding God, refusing to allow him to be the centre of their life, the centre of their city. If you look at the start of chapter 11, probably what's happened is chapter 10, gives us the big detail and then chapter 11 goes back in time to explain how we arrived there. Sometime previously rather than many languages like chapter 10, previous there was only one. Verse 2 we read about a group of people who arrive at a plain in Shinar or Babylon and they settle there and that's fine, so far so good. They start to build a city That's also fine, there's nothing wrong with cities. They make bricks uh, instead of using stone. They use bitumen instead of mortar, all of that's fine. After all, God did command them to subdue the earth, to to use it, to create from it. But verse 4 is where the problem begins. Uh, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered. So there in the space of one verse we find three mistakes, three sins. First they want to build a city with a striking centrepiece, something that will put them on the map like the big banana in Coffs Harbour or the big merino in Goulburn or the big trout in Adaminobi or the big potato in Robertson. In Babel we have the big tower. A tower that reaches to the heavens. Now if that was all we were told it would probably wouldn't be a huge deal but reading between the lines it's about refusing to stay in the position God sets for them. It's wanting to set themselves up in the place of God to reach for heaven themselves. To start a revolution, to install a new king A new moral decision maker. Gee, this sounds familiar. It's the same sin as Adam and Eve. I want to be God. You can see it in their second mistake. Rather than building and making and creating and multiplying in obedience to God so that God can be honoured, what's their motive? To make a name for themselves. To exalt themselves rather than God. It's pride. It's pride that refuses to recognise God as their source, as the goal and the motivation for the developments they make. Technological invention, scientific discovery, political advancement, all done for the goal of taking credit for ourselves. Refusing to give God the glory as the one who equips us who gives us brains, who commissions us to create and rule and subdue the world. That's the sin, taking credit for ourselves. Making a name, being first, being best. That's their goal. Can you see yourself? Can you see yourself? But it's God who should be the centre of their city. He's the king they should follow. And yet instead they want a tower that reaches to the heavens to replace God with their own creation. It's idolatry. That's the second part of their sin. The third part of their sin, there at the end of verse 4, why are they building a city? So they will not be scattered. The very thing God commanded them to do was to spread out and fill the earth, but no, they want to stay. They want to not be scattered. They're not interested in God's commands. They want to be comfortable, protected, settled, safe. They want to stay right where they are. Thank you very much. Who cares about being obedient? Who cares about taking risks? Who cares what God thinks? So what does God think of all of this? Well, he comes down. So it can't have been much of a tower because we're told he comes down. So I don't think they were that successful in reaching up Uh, He comes down to check out this noble piece of advertising, uh, of engineering and architecture. Uh, He comes down to check out the political and economic organisation that managed to get this project off the ground. And here's his response. The Lord said, If, as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. Uh, God said, We better nip this in the bud. We better stop this early. If they get if, if they get things this wrong already, how far will they go if they're given free reign? if they continue working together, if they continue to use their God-given creativity to go in all sorts of directions against God's will. It's like the father who shops the front gate while the kids play in the yard. He thinks, if they get up to this much trouble in the yard, imagine what they can do if they get out onto the road. It's like the mum who sees her daughter playing with a knife and takes it away for her protection. It's not that God is concerned that they might actually achieve what they're aiming for. He's not worried that they're actually going to reach heaven. He's not jealously guarding his domain. His concern is that they're protecting, they're protecting them from themselves he's concerned of placing boundaries and limits on what mankind is able to achieve and so he confuses their languages and the people are forced to scatter and as you follow the story of nations through the bible you can see that those boundaries actually work when one nation oversteps its boundaries and it becomes so wicked that god seeks to punish them how does he normally do it he uses another nation One nation rises up and overthrows another because of their wickedness. And yet behind all of those human events there's there's God's plan, God's judgement, using the hostility of nations to keep wickedness in check. So one way to see God's scattering and confusion of languages is to actually see it as protection. Yes, there's an element of judgement to it, but it's also designed to keep their behaviour in check, to, to limit it, to, to place a fence around how much trouble they can get into. And the result is that people are forced to obey God's command to scatter and fill the earth and subdue it. They're forced to do it by their own hostility and suspicion towards each other. And so what we've got really is that chapter 11 explains how chapter 10 happened. How chapter 10 resulted in the world full of cultures and languages. And it's actually the result of disobedience rather than obedience. And so there's your Charlie Brown dose of reality to this situation of of people who filled the earth. Just in case we start to think that maybe they're getting it right. And so we come to the end of the story of Babel. Nations are spreading out, they're living in fear of each other, they're living apart from each other, they're living apart from God. They still need to be reconciled, reconciled to each other and reconciled to God. We'll see how God begins that process next week with a guy called Abram. Uh, But before we get there, I want to jump forward uh, many thousands of years. I want to skip through large chunks of the Bible uh, and I want to land in another city. Uh, We're going to land in Jerusalem. Uh, It's Pentecost. It's 50 days after Passover. The year is about 30 AD. And we're going to look at what happened when Babel is reversed when Babel is reversed in Acts chapter 2. Jesus has come, he's died, he's been raised, he's been restored to heaven, he's ascended, he's done what he came to earth to do, he's reconciled people to God and now he's told the disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit. Uh, His Holy Spirit will be the one who will give them the power to take the message of reconciliation to the world. The good news that will unite people again under God's chosen King Jesus. And as these disciples, this little band, are waiting in Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit falls on them and they start speaking other languages. Just like Babel, all God's work. They're good Jews. The day before they'd spoken Aramaic and and probably Greek, but now they start to speak the languages of the rest of the nations. They start to speak the languages of the Parthians and the Medes and the Elamites and of Mesopotamia and the Cappadocians and Egyptians and Libyans and Arabs. All the languages of the known world. It amazes the tourists in town. They just happen to be visiting from those same countries. And they hear the good news about Jesus in their own language. The news about the one who breaks down barriers. And Acts 2.41 tells us that 3,000 of those tourists believe the message, become Christians and then carry the news back to their homes and tell others about it. People spreading out, speaking different languages again. Does it sound familiar? It's Babel reversed. Because this time they're doing it in obedience to God, with a message that unites with a new King, King Jesus. And this group, though they speak many languages, are brothers and sisters. They're part of the one family because they're connected to their head, Jesus. And we're part of that. We're part of that unity. We're part of the task to build that unity. In fact, that's the only unity that actually works. Mankind's effort at peace and reconciliation, when it doesn't include God, amounts to nothing. It amounts to frustration and misunderstanding and hostility and failure. It's only the gospel that unites people. It's only the gospel that Crosses cultural and language barriers that goes against colour and race and geography. Soccer can't do it. Or the Olympic Games or the United Nations or the Commonwealth Games. A global concert to eradicate poverty can't do it. It's only the Gospel that can truly bring people together for eternity. And while we experience a taste of that unity now. God has a much greater unity in mind. Uh, This is just the entree. It'll be a unity that lasts for eternity. So I want to finish by looking at a picture of a third city. We've looked at Babel, we've looked at Jerusalem. Uh, This third city has people living together in complete unity and protection and peace. It's the heavenly Jerusalem. But rather than a city with God removed, rather than a city with a tower at its centre, this city has God at its centre. It has God and man in perfect fellowship. God the source of life and light and love and joy. Revelation 21 verse 2 says, uh, I saw the holy city, the New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They'll be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. A bit further down in verse 22 of uh, Revelation 21, it, it describes what's in the centre of the city. I didn't see a temple in the city, verse 22, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city doesn't need the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. The Lamb is its Lamb. The nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring their splendour into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it nor will anyone who does what's shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. That's the picture of the unity of God and man. The unity of men with men, people with people. It's that unity that God has been working on to restore since the creation of the world. It's a unity that's focused on Jesus, the one who is at the centre. It's a work that we're called to share in. We are called to spread out and take the news of Jesus to the world. The news that unites people in a way that nothing else can. But as we do it we need to learn some lessons from the people of Babel. As individuals, as a church, there are temptations uh, to to the sins that Babel fell into. The temptation to band together, to circle the wagons and shut up shop, to get comfortable, to worship our idols rather than live obediently with an outward focus. We can be tempted like Babel to build our assets to focus on our family, to work on our home, to keep everything neat and controlled and never risk anything for anyone outside. We can be tempted like Babel when it comes to jealously guarding our time. Our Saturdays, our evenings, our Sunday afternoon naps, they're so precious we won't give them up for anyone. God calls us to scatter How well are you doing at that? As a church, we're pretty comfortable. We enjoy each other. How serious are we about stepping out of our comfort zone to building bridges, to connecting, pushing that conversation one more question past the comfortable, inviting friends to church, or the movie night, or a home group dinner. We talk about it, we pray about it, but are we doing it? It's even more of a temptation as Christianity is increasingly pushed to the fringes of society, as we're increasingly branded as discriminatory and hateful, as we stand for the truth, for right and wrong, for God's revelation. When everywhere around us people are saying that truth and right and wrong are whatever you want it to be. The reality is the church is the most inclusive society there is. It's the most accepting and welcoming and loving and unifying. That's God's big plan for the world to unite to include everybody, every language and culture and persuasion under Jesus. The church is a foretaste of that. The church is working to bring that inclusiveness about. They say if you don't know what you're aiming for, you'll never hit it. Uh, So let me finish with a target. Here's God's end goal. Goal. A picture of unity and peace and harmony. Once again, it's from Revelation. And once again, it's about all people united. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. John writes There before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes, holding palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice. Loud voices. It's amazing, isn't it? Every language, but they're crying out in a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God for ever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to see, to long for that vision, uh, that vision of your elect people gathered around your throne in unity and inclusion, uh, proclaiming and honouring Jesus, Uh, might we here at Ashfield Presbyterian Church be a foretaste of that, Uh, united, inclusive, welcoming, holy and pure, loving and accepting. Uh, For Jesus' sake, Amen.